The point of the true story told in the Bible is that there is a Savior who can deliver on His promise to take us back to the garden and even further, right into His Father's house. Turn to Matthew and Mark, the first two books of the New Testament, as our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, picks up the pieces to the puzzle that tell us about the arrival of God's serpent slayer and the beginning of God's incredible good news. Good news that's all about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. I had just gotten back from a, a retreat, a quiet retreat down in Brazos and down a little bit south here, down near Glen Rose. And I turned on the news and the very first headline was that there was a murder on the loose in my old stomping grounds, right up in western New York, really close to where I went to college. There was a murder on the loose, and they were trying to catch him. And as they gave their name to the towns on the New York-Pennsylvania uh, border, I'm saying, oh, good night. That's only about 45 minutes away from where I went to college. And then looking at those hills, and now I know how hard it is to put perimeters out in uh, wooded terrain and everything. You know, I'm praying, Lord, keep those policemen safe and help them to be okay. And, it, and then right after that, they come on the news and they talk about, they have a picture of all these parents running towards the high school. I go, oh no, there's been another shooting in the high school right over here in Fort Worth. We had the scare of shooting breaking out and one of the students unloaded on the police and they had unload back on him. And I'm saying, good night. We're definitely not living in paradise. What happened to the quiet, tranquil little paradise beside you know, the Brazos River down there in Glenrose? But to be honest with you, during the retreat, we really weren't living in paradise because Lane was sitting next to me at this retreat, this leader's retreat, and he was blowing his nose the entire time. In fact, to be honest with you, half the time he was slapped down in his seat and he's groaning, and I have to give him medical advice that he really needs to get some clearing and D and several other things. I mean, here's this guy that his allergies are just killing him. And so I realized we're definitely not living in paradise. But you know, in your heart, every one of you as you watch the news and you experience illness, a lot of times a lot worse than colds, you feel that something's wrong. How many of you feel that something's wrong in the world right now? Anybody feel it all? Like, how many of you feel that you're just living in heaven on earth? I mean, this is the greatest thing you can imagine. There's nothing wrong in our society. There's nothing wrong in the world. Anybody there? But how many of you feel it ought to be better? How many of you experience a little bit of anger when things go nutty, right? I want to understand that that is a gift that the Lord has given you. That's the work of God, his spirit, that's in work in your heart. And what I want you to know that he's put in your heart a hunger for his paradise. In fact, um, Plato wrote, he's a Greek philosopher, he wrote a whole treatise on what he thought was the perfect paradise, the perfect city. If you read Plato's version of it, you wouldn't think you're living in paradise, but he thought he was. There's an Englishman named Sir Thomas More. How many of you ever heard the word utopia? Anybody ever heard the word utopia? They say, oh, good night, words. And what does that word mean? Utopia is the idea that there's going to be a marvelous civilization somewhere. There's going to be a marvelous kingdom somewhere, and it's going to be exactly what everything is supposed to be. And Sir Thomas More is where we get that word utopia. I won't give you the long, uh, you know, middle-aged title that he gave to his book, but part of the title was Utopia. And Sir Thomas More wrote about an island. It was an island that he discovered, and it was, everything was perfect there. 
And what he gave you was Sir Thomas More's idea of what was perfect. Interesting enough, Karl Marx picked up on that idea of utopia. And what Karl Marx's writings are about is a paradise. It's called a worker's paradise. Karl Marx was living in London. He was looking at little kids that lived all their life working 14, 15 hours a day, many of them dying in their teens. And he, it broke his heart. He was grieved over that. He saw women working in the industrial, as the industrial age really got cranked up. He saw a thousands, thousands of people living in London that were dying before they got to be 25. And he saw the injustice. He saw that there were powerful industrial magnets that were working his children, couldn't care less about it. And so he wrote his book about communism because he said, we're going to have the work of the world unite and we're going to have a great revolution and that's going to produce utopia, the worker's paradise. Did it produce it? Well, Stalin implemented what, you know, what uh, Lenin tried to create and millions upon millions of people die. You see, when we try to make paradise through our own human effort, we produce hell. And I want every one of you to realize that. But this morning, as we open up to his story, the New Testament, I want you to understand that the heartbeat of the book of Matthew and the book of Mark, which is going to give us the foundation. Mark is kind of the, the succinct. If you don't like to read that much, how many of you have trouble with big books? Anybody have trouble with that? Well, if you're one of those people, that means you're kind of Roman, and Mark is the book for you. Because Mark in 16 chapters will lay out for you, this is the heartbeat of who Jesus is, about the struggle that he has with Satan, and about how he beats Satan, and then what you need to do about it. It's all there in the book of Mark. The book of Matthew builds on that structure. And what I want you to know that Matthew and Mark, the heart of their message is this. I want you to turn around. We've got this weird Elijah-like prophet that comes in about 30 A.D., He's preaching down by the Dead Sea in an area that looks like the moon that totally really affirms his message that there is spiritual deadness. There is spiritual coldness in people's hearts. And John the Baptist starts crying out to people. He's saying, turn around, turn around. I want you to repent. I want you to feel badly about your sin. How many of you feel badly about your sin today? It's real important for you to look at what's wrong in my life and not feel that everything's great. Like if you're an angry person and it rages up inside of you, maybe you're a teenager and you've experienced a terrible problem in your family. Maybe your family blew apart and you're angry. The Lord wants you to realize that there's something wrong. He wants you to realize that it's not going to be good for you to want to hit everybody with your fist, eventually maybe taking a gun and blowing people away. That's not going to be a good thing for you. And Jesus wants you to feel sorry about that. And the good news is that he says, but the kingdom of God's at hand. You need to feel grieved about your sin. You need to want to turn away from it. Why? Because God's good news, his kingdom has arrived. And what we have in the book of Mark and Matthew is through half of these books that challenges who is this one that's proclaiming the kingdom. How is the kingdom come? So as you open up to Matthew and Mark, what I'd like all of you to do in your life, from here on out, when you're reading one of these gospels, you want to ask yourself, who is it that's telling me that the kingdom of God is at hand? And so what we have in these gospels is that we have what's in a name. What's the name 
that is the name that's going to bring the kingdom. As you open up to Matthew, and let's just begin there, in some narratives that you know really well, as we ask this question, first of all, which is the question asked all the way through the first half of Matthew and the first half of Mark. You'll understand these gospels if you understand that it laid it out for you. Some of you are sitting there today and saying, David, why should I believe in Jesus? If I'm honest, the way that I was raised, I often was in meetings where we were told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved. We were often taught that you're really, really a bad person and you're going to too many movies, you're playing too many cards, you're drinking too much, you're dancing too much, you're doing all those terrible things and you need to come to Jesus and he'll straighten your life out. And people were challenged. And then we also had people challenging us to give our whole life to Jesus. In other words, you need to throw a stick on the fire, showing that you're going to burn your life out totally for the glory of Jesus. And the Lord powerfully used that. But I remember seeing there as a kid, and, and all my life I've kind of been like this, as I listen to someone talk, and they're trying to do something, I find myself asking, why should I believe in Jesus? What makes Jesus so special? And I think a lot of your friends that are out there, in fact, maybe even some of you, don't really know why you should believe in Jesus. And some of the stuff we've heard it from the time we were little kids, that it's kind of just part of the fabric of our life, but I don't think we really believe it. But Matthew and Mark begin by not just saying, hey, you need to turn around, come to Jesus, because you need to believe in him. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Everybody's a sinner. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for sinner. Every person needs to believe. That's a great summary of the gospel. But it doesn't fill in, why should you follow Jesus? And what I want you to know that in these books, did you read Matthew and Mark? Jesus isn't going to tell you, come to me and life will be easy. Jesus is very strong. He's going to come to you and say, you follow me. If you follow me, there's a good chance you'll lose everything. If you follow me, you're going to face tremendous persecution by the world of darkness. If you follow me, you might even lose your life, because if you follow me, the story is going to end. In my life, it ended with a crucifixion, so in your life, it could end there too. Now, that's not very pleasing news. But Jesus is that kind of a teacher. One of the things that I, as I spend time listening to Jesus is Jesus never pulls any punches. He never manipulates. He treats everybody with great individuality. In fact, if you're sitting here today reading Matthew and Mark, which I'd like to really challenge you to do, Jesus will say, you have the right. Think about it. Think about who I am. Think about what I've done. And you're going to have to decide which side you're going to be on, and Jesus will let you decide. Like, he won't force you. He won't try to manipulate you. He won't con you. Because he respects every one of you. But it's very important to understand that that decision that you make about who is this Jesus and what has he done and why should I follow him, those are the most important questions that you can ever get the answer to. So Matthew begins his gospel. I begin with Matthew with some real familiar passages. How many of you have ever read the Christmas story? Everybody that's ever read the Christmas story, raise your hand. All right? Where's the Christmas story found? If you don't know where it's found, that's fine. We're thrilled to death that you're here. And I love teaching a family where some of you are just beginning in this. The Christmas story isn't found in Mark, and it isn't found in John. So it's found in Matthew and in Luke. And next week we'll look a little bit at Luke. But let's begin with the Christmas story on Matthew. It focuses on Joseph. An angel appears to Joseph. He's really ticked because his, his fiance is pregnant. Would that tick you out? Yes. And you need angels to appear. 
I mean, Mary and I are involved often in, in younger people's love affairs. And to be honest with you, man, it's like a roller coaster. And uh, I'm, I'm, through the years, I look back, I'll never forget me- meeting with Mike Welburn when he was trying to marry Lindy, which was many years ago. Man, the guy couldn't decide right there in the back. I'm saying, Mike, you know, you need to decide. And man, the ups and downs of this relationship, praise God, they got it worked out. Mike was strong. He committed it to Lindy. And now they have some beautiful family. And le- they're not living happily ever after, but they're doing great, okay? Romantic love affairs are really tough. So as we begin this story, Joseph is a fiancé that's in a really bad jam. An angel appears to him. Can anybody remember what the angel said Joseph should name the baby boy? What should his name be? His name shall be... That's it. Tell me real loud. His name shall be... Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. It's a verse you've heard a bunch. It's Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It says, call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Just to fill in the blanks a little bit, to you, Jesus is just a label. If you're from a Spanish background, you're Jesus. In fact, you probably have a lot of Jesuses. In fact, one of my friends was in the hospital, and a minister came to visit him, and, and he was talking to him about Jesus. He says, well, Jesus is right over there. And man, it, the, the pastor just about dropped his teeth, and he was looking at that Jesus over there. And he's been talking to me all day long. So if you're from that background, it's a common name. If you're a Hebrew speaker, you would hear a sentence. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, saves. That's what Yeshua, the great deliverer that came after Moses in the story of the Old Testament, Joseph is told by the angel, you're going to call your baby son that's been born in the virgin womb, that's conceived in the virgin womb of your fiance. You're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So what's one of the things that we should look for all the way through the book of Matthew? We need to look for how in the world is Jesus going to save us from our sins. How many of you need to be saved from your sin? Anybody need that? And I got news for you. Psychologists are not going to save you from your sin. Like you might think they are. If you're a school teacher and really bad problems break out, I think, sure, the Lord in his common grace gives insight into counsel and everything. But I got news for you. You got some kids that you're trying to teach this week and you can make them feel good about themselves. You can make them feel like they're in a really positive environment. And if they keep going the way they're going, they're going to kill you. They're going to rebel against you. They're going to turn against you because they're not such good little boys and girls deep inside. The Bible tells the truth about what every single one of us are about. And the truth of the matter is every one of you are dirty, rotten sinners. And I am too. There's an incredibly dark side of us. And something that psychology can do is expose some of that darkness. But when you find out what the darkness really is, then you got to ask the question, what am I going to do about it? How do I really get forgiven? How do I really get delivered? And you need to read Matthew, Mark, ask yourself, how does Jesus answer the question of sin? How will Jesus forgive me of our sin? Just to give you something you can be looking for. Jesus is going to see someone that has an illness. And Jesus, rather than saying to the person that has this paralysis, get up and walk, Jesus will look at a guy and say, your sins are forgiven you. Why did he do that? Now, some of you might want to come to me and have me, you know, say, well, Dave, I've done this horrible thing. 
In fact, I have people down through the years, they want to come and talk to me, they've really screwed up. Usually they want to, for me to say, you didn't really screw up so bad, it's probably going to be okay. But some people really in their soul, in fact, some of you are from backgrounds that like a lot of kids that I was raised with where every week they went to a priest and they asked him to forgive them. They confessed their sins and they asked the priest to forgive them. Well, I got news for you. I could put my hand on you. I could hug you. I could put both hands on you. And I could say, blessed brother, blessed sister, you're forgiven. It's not going to do a blessed thing. I'm serious. My forgiveness is not going to help you one single iota. When it comes one day to stand before the holy God of the universe, boy, don't depend upon my forgiveness, guys, or girls. So who is Jesus? Because Jesus will look at people. In fact, he's going to get crucified because he said, I can forgive sins. The religious leaders of his day said, that's blasphemy. This man claimed to forgive sins, so you have to make a decision. You join the religious leaders who concluded that this man's an imposter, he lied, or you have to get down on your knees and says, good night, God is among us. Who can forgive sins? Only God can do that, and Jesus is claiming he can forgive sins. That's all in the name Jesus. The next name that's given in the, in the prophecy of, of uh, Isaiah chapter 7, it says, A virgin shall be conceived, and she'll give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. That's another Hebrew sentence. It's another name for Jesus, which means God is with us. So as you look at this, these names, one of the things you need to look for in Matthew and in Mark is how in the world was God among us in the person of Jesus? And later on, when we get to the Gospels, we're going to have it filled in that God is among us because Jesus is none other than God himself come in the flesh. And you have to decide whether you're going to believe that or not. Another name, a major name, and this is the major name in both Matthew and in Mark, is the Son of God. The Son of God. In fact, we're going to have two words. The major titles for Jesus in Matthew and Mark are the Son of God and the Son of Man. And both titles are very important. In fact, those are the two titles all the way through the short version of the gospel, which is in the gospel of Mark. Mark camps out on Son of God, Son of Man. Let's talk about Son of God first of all. It says like in Matthew 1.15, Out of Egypt have I called my son, or Matthew 2.15. It's a verse that goes back to Hosea chapter 11, and when the baby Jesus and his mom and dad are going down into Egypt, it's Matthew writes, these things are fulfilled according to Hosea chapter 11, 1, out of Egypt have I called my son. And what God is saying, God is speaking, and God is saying this little baby that's being taken to Egypt, and then is going to come back up out of Egypt, is my son. Like I called Israel my son in the Old Testament, I called Jesus my son as he enacts his life in the New Testament. Not just totally yet a statement of Jesus' divinity, the fact that he's God. When you get to the, the uh, baptism of Jesus, how many of you have ever read the story of the baptism of Jesus? All right, fill me in on it. John the Baptist doesn't want to baptize Jesus. says, oh, we need to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, John baptizes him. When Jesus came up out of the water, somebody tell me what happened. There was a dove that came, maybe some kind of a symbolic dove or maybe a real dove. We'll have to ask John someday. But whatever it was, it was a symbol of the Holy Spirit that came upon uh, this one that's going to be able to baptize with this Holy Spirit. But then something incredible happened. Can someone tell me what happened? There was a voice. And what did the voice say? Is that important? You say, well, Dave, why should I believe in Jesus? I'm really challenged this morning. I want you to give everything for Jesus. 
I want you to let him totally control your life. I want you to live your life totally for him. And the reason you should do so is you show me somebody else that had God from heaven say, hey, guys, this is my son, my beloved son. You better listen to him. That's real important. In fact, when Jesus is transfigured and he takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain and he lets them see just a little bit of his glory, again, God the Father from heaven says what? This is my son. You need to listen to him. So that shows you, as you go through the book, one of the things that Matthew and Mark develop for you is this is God's one and only son. And that's why I trust them. And we could go through and give you a whole lot of other things. Uh, for example, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, it's going to end. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he chooses to reveal them. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. All authority is given to me. So come to me. I'm the one that decides who makes it to the Father. Should we tell everybody in the world about this son, the only one that can take us to the Father? Yes. Do you got that? Your world says there's many different ways. Even Dave Neal just gave me the religious paper from yesterday, the Dallas Morning News. It's telling you just the opposite. It's saying there's many different ways. There's the Islamic way. There's the Buddhist way. There's the Jewish way. There's all kinds of ways. It's the popular thing to believe. Read the historical narrative of Matthew and Luke and Matthew and Mark this morning, and you ask yourself, is that what Jesus says? Does Jesus say, oh, there's a lot of different ways. I'm one of the ways. I'm a great religious teacher. I'm going to show you how to live the good life. That's not at all what Jesus says. There's no document that is rooted in history at all that makes that kind of a claim at all. Instead, I got a document where Jesus says, I'm the Son of God. Jesus says, I'm the Son of God. And in fact, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus says, one day... When you die, you'll stand before me. And I'll decide whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. So is it important what you decide about Jesus? And I want you to know how important this name is. He's the Son of God. He's Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Watching a movie again, just last night, or the night before last, watching the movie again on Friday night, right in the middle of the movie, Jesus Christ was the cuss word. Why is that? Why is it that people want to put a barb in? Because there's a great conflict going on between Jesus and the evil one. And you've got to decide which side of that conflict. And if you're having trouble with cussing, What's going to cure you of that is when you begin to think about what am I saying and whose allegiance am I swearing to? When you come out with Jesus Christ to cuss things and to curse things because things have gone wrong, it's like, you know, cursing your mother that you love dearly. That's why you don't do it. And don't yell at the unbelievers that do that. You should expect unbelievers to do that. Don't you do it. Or if you do do it, tell your unbelieving friends, I'm sorry, I should never, that, that name means everything to me. I want you to forgive me that I used it lightly. And that, and that becomes a motivation for helping you understand this really is a real conflict. Son of God is one of, the major, one of the major words for the divinity of Jesus. And I could go on and on. We could speak, speak the next several weeks just on Matthew and Mark's use of the Son of God. I just want to whet your appetite to study the Word of God on your own. Son of man is the next phrase. I've often taught you in Hebrew, if I want to describe the character of someone, I'd say it's the son of so-and-so. It's a very common phrase. 
And like this word in Hebrew is Ben-Adam, the son of Adam, the son of a man. And, and, and Ezekiel liked to use that title, I'm just the son of man. So in normal Hebrew usage, the word son of man is like saying, I'm just a human being. That would be a way of saying it. I'm just a typical human being. So one of the things that stresses is that Jesus is not only the divine son, but in Matthew and Mark, he doesn't come as some supernatural divine son that comes and invades from outer space somewhere. He's a human being. He was born in a real mom. He lived a real life. He got tired like we did. So one of the major ideas that you want to understand about Jesus is that when you talk to Jesus, you're talking to someone that's a son of man. He's a human being. He's just a man. And that's what that phrase uh, in, in the Hebrew would testify to. And that's Jesus' favorite title through Matthew and Mark. So one of you does over and over again. I want to tell you something else about this little word, son of man, though. In Daniel's prophetic message, in Daniel chapter 7, he gives one of the most powerful prophetic um, overviews of world history you can give. He starts out with the Babylonian, Babylonian Empire. His fourth empire is a Roman Empire, and then he has the Roman Empire kind of dissolving into kind of amorphous uh, mixed bag. And then he has a great rebellion, and right in the middle of that rebellion, as planet Earth rebelled against God, he has the Son of Man coming with the clouds of great glory. So this is written 600 years before Jesus. But in Jewish thinking, son of man not only means just a human being, but it means the human being. It means the man who's going to come and be the son of man that destroys the kingdom of evil. So that's what the phrase son of man. So as you go through the book of Matthew and Mark, like in Matthew 24, for example, and also in the book of Mark, I think it's chapter 13, they're going to have what we call an apocalyptic chapter. In fact, before you start moving towards the cross, Matthew and Mark are going to do a weird thing. They're going to talk to you about the end of time, and they're going to talk about a great coming of the Son of Man. So as you're sitting here today, I want you to understand, if you say, I believe in Jesus, what I want you to do is I want you to start coloring in. Who do you believe in? I believe when I talk to Jesus, he's a human being. He's lived where I've lived. He understands what I'm going through. He's a human being that identifies with my problems. But I also understand that he's the one ultimately that has all authority and will come and set things right on planet Earth and then set things right for all of eternity because that's what the Son of Man does. And what I want you to understand is that the Jesus that presented himself in the first century, that's what Jesus claims to be. And that's why he got killed. Because one group of people said, no, that's a lie. You are not the divine judge of the universe. You're not the son of man that's going to come. You're not our Messiah, and we reject you. And you can decide that. And your eternal destiny will depend upon that. Another group of people said, we believe you. And world history flows from there. One group of people are believing in Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the Savior. Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus as the Son of God. And another group rejecting him. When you go to your school... It divides like that. When you go to your work, it divides like that. And I want you to understand that we're going to close with a great responsibility we have to herald the good news. So those are the names of Jesus. One final name, we could give several others, but let me just talk to you about one that's so important to you. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. When Jesus comes down from the north, which Matthew and Mark present like Jesus ministering in his hometown up in Galilee, then he moved to the south, and he comes down probably through Transjordan, across the Jordan River, and he comes through the entrance gate of the southern kingdom of Judea, of Jericho. 
And in Jericho, as he's leaving Jericho, and the next steps he would take is up a 2,000-foot rise up to the Mount of Olives and then up into Jerusalem. Before, as he's leaving that city, a blind man, in fact, two blind men did it, and then the, some of the gospel is going to focus and say, let's make this story really focused, and I'll talk to you about Bartimaeus. But there's actually two blind men that caused a tremendous ruckus. Do you remember what they said? They said, son of... David, have mercy on us. Why does Matthew and Mark tell you that? Because these blind men are telling you that man right there that's walking out of Jerusalem, going towards the cross, that man is the Messiah. And Jesus hears them yelling. Everyone's telling me, you blind men, shut up. Don't you know we don't have time for those disabled people today? You can have a program another day. This is the day that Jesus is really important. Jesus hears the blind man saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He stopped everything. And he goes over and says, what do you guys want? They said, we want to be able to see. And Jesus says, you can see. That's why I believe in Jesus. I don't know any other human being that's ever lived on planet Earth unless they're related to Jesus, like Peter and Paul. I don't know anyone else that can have a person say, have mercy on me, I want to be able to see, and Jesus makes them see. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, the reason I follow Jesus is I believe he has that kind of power, and hope you believe that. Because if you don't have that kind of power, then we're idiots to follow him. And what he was demonstrating, I'm the son of David. One of the things I want you to think of as you're studying now through the book, we talk about his identity. He is the Savior that will save us from our sins. He's God with us. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. Now let's talk about what we've been talking all along, the great conflict in the book between the, the serpent seed and God's good seed. Who is the bad seed? Who are the primary bad seeds as you go through the Gospels? Like in the birth narrative of Jesus, as you go through the birth narrative of Jesus, who's the bad seed? Herod's one of the bad seed. What does he represent? Herod represents a political ruler that lives just for power. He murders his own family. And in Matthew, in the, in the infancy narrative, who's he trying to murder? He murders a bunch of babies. Where have you seen that before? In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh wanted to murder babies. He specifically wanted to murder Moses, and he didn't even know it, but but Moses was going to be the deliverer. Matthew is telling you, we've got the same story. Does that relate to your story? When you go out into the world of politics, when you think about rulers, they're going to be those that just live for their power. They will lie, they will steal, they will murder. If you don't think you live in a world like that, you do. And the Bible's being really honest about it. Are they going to win in the end? Does Herod win in the end? He cuts John the Baptist's head off, showing you again. He's part of the serpent seed. Did Herod win in the end? No. He didn't win. And the family that he produces didn't win. And that's what Matthew wants you to realize. And that's a real choice for you. Some of you are going to go out in your job, in your political arena, and you're going to be deciding whether I'm, going to, whether I'm going to believe I need to follow Jesus. I need to be gentle. I need to be sure that I'm just. I need to be sure that I tell the truth. I want you to see that the evil in the book of Matthew and Mark is politically Pilate, Herod, that live just for their power. Don't you do it. I can't do it. Second of all, you know the other bad news guys in the book of Matthew and Mark? It's not that the how many think prostitutes are really bad. 
We were telling some of the leaders last night about the great adventures of early Midlothian Bible Church where we had a prostitute. She came right into our service, and you'd all know. She, we only had a group of about 35. When a prostitute walks into a group of 35, everyone knows what's going on. We had exciting days in those early days. You know what? In the Gospels, they're sinners. But you know what? In the Gospels, they respond to Jesus. They believe in Jesus. But you know who didn't respond to Jesus? The really good religious people. The one that had everything together. So one of the studies I want you to make as you study through the Gospels is who are the bad guys politically because it's going to be Pilate and the Roman Empire that had the miscarriage of justice that kills Jesus, and it's going to be the religious leaders. In fact, the really bad seed are the religious leaders that have a responsibility for bringing the people to God. Instead, they drive people away from God. And they get ticked with Jesus because they're all into obeying all the external things, and they're not into facing the real evil that's inside of them. And one of Matthew and Mark's big point is that you're an evil person not because you don't wash your hands right, not because you don't eat certain some food. Some of you are, have a fetish about having to eat just the right food. And I want you to eat the healthy food, but if you think evil is in food, I got news for you. It isn't. Evil isn't in food. Your diet isn't what makes you an adulterer. It's not your diet that makes you a sinner. It's not like a glass of Jewish wine made from the hills of Judea that makes you an alcoholic. So don't blame it on the stuff. You got to face. You know where evil comes from in me? Right here. And that leads us to the great climate of the book. The whole first part of these books challenge you. The political leaders are turning away from Jesus. It's not popular to follow Jesus because they're increasing the, the noose against him. The religious leaders aren't following Jesus, but there's a small band and an increasing band that believe in Jesus. And Jesus moves towards Mount Calvary. He comes to the last week, and both Matthew and Mark focus almost all their attention just on a week of Jesus. And why is that? Because Jesus has told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And he goes to Jerusalem, and guess what happens? Judas betrays him. He has a, a crazy trial that any idiot would know. It's just a bunch of Trump charges. But if you look carefully at Matthew and Mark, Jesus gets crucified because the Jewish leaders said he claimed to be the Messiah, and he isn't. So he blasphemed, and according to our law, he should die. And if you follow their logic and you make their choice, you know what? They were right. So that's the choice you need to make. You need to decide that Jesus was a liar that claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, and he wasn't. He claimed to be God's son, and he wasn't. And therefore, he's one of the wickedest men that ever died. And the cross was a really a good thing, not because it saved you, but because it put to death a criminal. That's the choice that I want you to give you. That's what Matthew and Mark in their real literature tell you. And some of you have been in church a long time and you've never gotten that together. Pilate's going to crucify Jesus because Jesus claims to be a king. And Pilate knows that Jesus is claiming to be a supernatural king that's going to be a spiritual leader. And he knows in his heart that the Jewish leaders have just brought Jesus before him for envy, but he's chicken, like a lot of political leaders, and he doesn't stand for justice. And he knows that if it ever gets back to Tiberius in Rome, that he let a man that claimed to be the king of the Jews to get away with it, that his career would roll. So he crucifies Jesus. 
But why was Jesus really put on the cross? And this is the, the strange twist in the story. All the way through his story in the Old Testament, Satan's been trying to kill the son of David. He's been trying to kill the Messiah. And finally, at the culmination of Matthew and Mark, Jesus hollers out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he breathes at his last and he dies. And you have heard it so many times that you don't get it. That's one, of the, that's one of the most sad, it's one of the most unexplainable, it's, it's, it makes the whole story crash. It looks like Satan won. The story's over. The bad guys won. Because Satan's been trying to do this all the way through. And one of the things I want you to realize is Satan's really powerful. And some of you as young people are going to play with him and try to and, and have him do tricks for you and other things. And you're going to find out that he grabbed a hold of your life. Some of you adults do that. You think you can monkey with Satan. I want you to know Satan's really powerful. He can get Caiaphas to crucify God's son. He can get Pilate to miscarry justice and put an innocent man on the cross. He can do things like all the way through the book, he causes people to, be, to do really bad things, like the gathering demoniac cuts himself and takes off his clothes and threatens people and lives among the tombs. Satan can do a really terrible thing, but the most terrible thing it looked like he did is he crucified the Son of Glory. But that's when God twisted the whole story. That's why I love him. And it's why I know it's a true story, because only God can come up with a story like this. All the way from the beginning of time, God promised there's going to be a great deliverer and the serpent will strike him in the heel. But he, in that battle, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Because you know the rest of the story is that Jesus, yes, Satan put him on the cross. Yes, Satan was responsible and the people that sinned were responsible. But ultimately, there was a loving daddy in heaven that just like Abraham took his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, Jesus, God's son, was up, taken to a mountain with his daddy. And this time the daddy said, Son, in Gethsemane, I can't let you get off the altar. And the son and the daddy decided again, This cup will not pass from me. And Jesus hollered out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he breathed at his last. You know why? So that none of you would ever have to say that. There's not one of you in this room that ever need to say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? None of you have to stand before God someday and have him say, you're out of here. You're going to have to be catching the lake of fire forever and ever because you're a bad person. And none of you have to leave that going, God, God, why have you forsaken me? You say, why not? Because Jesus took what I deserved. God should forsake me. And he should forsake you. I was counseling with somebody really close to me. They said, Dave, I hate what I see inside of me. It scares the living daylights out of me. I said, you don't need to be scared. You need to be scared of that evil. But Jesus already knows what's there. Every nook and cranny. And he took all that filth and he put him on, took it on himself. And God turned his back, and the payment for sin was made. And when Jesus breathed at his last, the penalty was paid. And that leads to the incredible good news. You say, Dave, how do you know that that's true? How do you know that God the Father accepted Jesus? Because on the third day, when the women went to the tomb, they saw a blazing angelic 
man. And he says, go ahead and look. Look at the tomb. You've been to a lot of tombs. You want to anoint the body? Look at where he lay. And all the women see are grave clothes because Jesus is gone. And they walk out of that tomb, and a few minutes later, Jesus himself says, Ladies, you're the messenger people. I can count on ladies to give the right information to the disciples of Jesus. Tell them we got an appointment in Galilee. And the book of Matthew ends, and the book of Mark ends in its second ending with, Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. What I want you to understand is you say, well, Dave, why should I keep following Jesus today? It just struck me. One of the things that's really important as we go through the book is Jesus has the power over evil. And one of the things he does is that he puts his hand on people that are diseased and they get well. If you've trusted Jesus, if you've depended upon Jesus, then Jesus' spirit is upon you. And I want you to know that one of the things that we need to be bringing to our, into our circle of influence is that Jesus is with us. And we bring, we, there's this great struggle going on with evil. So let me use a really concrete thing right here in our town. How many of you have ever prayed for the policemen of Midlothian? How many of you have ever prayed for kids in Midlothian? Okay. You live in a town where just a, a few weeks ago, a young man that had a habit of drinking. How many of you have prayed against alcoholism? So that's a really powerful thing. That got a hold of him. Immoral relationships. Is that what Jesus wants? No. Does it produce? Why doesn't Jesus want those things? And this is what I want to close with. As you're going through Matthew and Mark, put a, on your paper, put kingdom of Jesus, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of this present world. Jesus, how many of you like disease? Kingdom of heaven, no disease forever and ever. How do you know that? Jesus, when he's here on earth, says, I'm going to give you a little glimpse of the kingdom. When I say no more blindness, throw the seeing eye dogs, don't need them at all, they can go into retirement. Wheelchairs go. That's the Savior that I follow, and that's why I follow him. As I read his Gospels, he's telling me that he doesn't yet control all things, but he tells me, and in his first coming, he showed me what he was like. He said, this is what my kingdom is like. In my kingdom, the enemy is defeated, and there's not going to be disease, and there's not going to be death, and I'm going to destroy the power of the evil one. In Satan's kingdom, there is murder, there is violence. Do you all have any influence on that? Jesus gives us glimpses of the kingdom, and one of the things I want you to know, and I want all of our young people to grow up and to understand, Jesus didn't just do things like the power of the resurrection isn't just in the past. So as I close today, Dustin, please come up here just for a minute. Just come on up here. Dustin's one of the strongest guys I know. And he worked out, and I worked out. This is what he looks like. This is what I look like. Uh, Dustin, I, he was, his wife, Marianne, was expecting their first child. And we prayed often after we, he worked out and I worked out. We prayed. And Dustin was, he wasn't working for Midlothian. He was going through the police academy and stuff. But on that Sunday night, when I went into the, the emergency room in Methodist, Dustin was hurting really badly. And he's one of the strongest guys I know, but right over here, he had his, his calf blown apart. And the guys came in and even said they, they picked up the, you know, the slug from his belt, and they were saying, praise God, that it protected him. But when I prayed for Dustin in the hospital there, I never dreamt 
that we'd be able to close the service and Dustin would just walk up here. And that's because you've been praying and you've been asking the Lord to heal him and to raise him up. Will the Lord always answer our prayers like that? It was a miracle. Dustin expressed to me in the emergency room, he said, Dave, I don't even know. We just come up the stairs and just all of a sudden all hell broke loose. Right through the door, automatic fire just sprayed us. And I, no way I could get out of the way. No way Cody, my buddy right behind me, could get out of the way. No way that each one of our officers could get out of the way. Somebody was saying it was a good shot. He wasn't a good shot. He was blowing blindly. Just tremendous fire. It's amazing, y'all, that Dustin's here with us today. And now we have an opportunity. Those of you that are older policemen, you have an opportunity of helping a young policeman to grow in the Lord and to, and to work through his career. As you go into society, our society needs to see people that believe that Jesus' kingdom is real, that Jesus is a good God. It was Jesus that enabled Dustin and those officers to live. The reason they were in that terrible thing is because the struggle with evil is real. There really is a Satan. He does dastardly things. It's not just a blind world where there's no morality. There is deep morality. But I want Dustin and Marianne to know I want them to raise their son and the new precious baby that's coming. I want them to know there's an incredible Savior. And Dustin can tell his family from here on out, I was with a group of people that believed in Jesus, and I trusted Jesus, and I was even moved to draw closer to him. And I walked very soon after I was shot because Jesus loves to touch our bodies and heal. Based upon Matthew and Mark, exposure of life of Jesus, why would you want to leave everything like Peter and John to follow him? I want you to be thinking about that in your notes this week as you go. I want you to ask yourself, why did Peter and John leave everything to follow Jesus? I want you to read Matthew and Mark, and you ask yourself, did they make a good choice? So I want you, I want you to know you're not in a church family where I'm going to ask you to trust to Jesus blindly. I think Peter and John made a great choice to leave their home, leave their fishing nets, and just follow Jesus. I want you to find out why. What are some of the steps that you could take this week to walk more closely to follow Jesus? Number two, how could the religious leaders have, com- have been so committed to obeying all the rules of Moses from the Pentateuch and yet be plotting to kill Jesus? And what I want you to ask yourself is will I let the Holy Spirit expose the hypocrisy in me? We learned one of the major things I told you, religious people are the ones that keep people from coming to Jesus. Well, I don't want anybody in the Lothian Bible Church to be one of those religious people. And I want you to be a church family that is like Jesus. You hang around with sinners because you can transform sinners to the good news you have to tell them. And I want us to be a million miles away from being like the Pharisees. Spend some time in prayer asking the Lord Jesus to expose any duplicity in your life. Number three, how did God turn the tables on Satan at Calvary? That's what we closed with. How did the resurrection prove Jesus' claim to be God's son? And why is the resurrection of Jesus so important in guaranteeing that we're going to enter paradise? The reason I know that Thomas More can't, be, can't get me to paradise and Jesus can is Thomas More died the way I'm going to die. But Jesus rose again from the dead. And finally, think of some good news. And this is what I want to close with. How many of you have had something really good happen to you? Every one of you talk about the good news. And that's why I want you to witness this week. How many of you think Jesus is good? 
How many think he brings good news? Don't think of your witnessing as something you've got to get off your back. Think about something really good happened to me. Somebody so incredible came into my life. That's what I want you to share with your unbelieving friends. Because Matthew said, and Mark said, go and proclaim the good news. So think about somebody this week that's had a lot of bad news in their life, and maybe I could just share a little bit of the good news of what Jesus has done. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.